This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about American exceptionalism and whether or not it's fading. Our guest for this talk, Robert Gates, has a deeply informed idea of American exceptionalism. He was the director of the CIA under George H.W. Bush, and then later served as the Secretary of Defense from 2006 to 2011, working in both Republican and Democratic administrations. And he's continued to grapple with the place of America in the world since the end of his public life a decade ago. Last year, he wrote a book titled Exercise of Power, American Failures, Successes, and a New Path Forward in the Post-Cold War Era. If that biography isn't enough to tell you what Gates means when he says American exceptionalism, his answer to the first question from interviewer Mary Kay Magstead certainly does. Gates kind of surprisingly credits Madeleine Albright, the Clinton-era Secretary of State, with coining the term American exceptionalism. But with all respect to Mr. Gates, that just is not the case. American exceptionalism as a term has been around since the 40s, at least, and the idea of a kind of American exceptionalism has been around since before the founding of the country, even. But Albright's American exceptionalism was a very specific one, built upon global supremacy in the post-Cold War era. That is what Gates is talking about here, in what is, at times, a pretty wonky conversation. Gates really gets into the weeds as he talks about American influence abroad, especially in China. It's a refreshingly in-depth take on a topic that's too often given a surface treatment. And the kind of subtext to this detailed breakdown is this. Being exceptional is hard work. The apparatus that has kept America convening and influencing over recent decades, it's very, very complicated. And, of course... With that complexity comes a kind of fragility. And that's what this conversation is about. This talk and all the other conversations on the keynote track of the 2021 Crosscut Festival is sponsored by BECU, which would like to share the following message. BECU believes every forward thinker deserves added momentum, so for over 85 years they have offered financial services and support to the community. Members have access to local financial centers, over 30,000 ATMs through the co-op network, and online resources. BECU is a member-owned credit union that puts people over profit. Learn more at BECU.org. Federally insured by NCUA. And I have just one more note on the recording. You'll hear some audio interference at the beginning of the interview, but I assure you that it clears up after Gates' first answer. All right. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Secretary Gates, thanks for being here. My pleasure. We'll get to China in a moment, but let's start closer to home. What does American exceptionalism mean to you? 
I think that American exceptionalism, and I think it was a coin, a phrase coined actually by Madeleine Albright, if I'm not mistaken, uh, back in the early 90s. I think, uh, the, the gist of it is that America has a unique place in the world uh, and, and is an exemplar of a, a free market economy and an example to the rest of the world. Uh, we have seen two different threads in American history of how that is put into practice. Uh, John Quincy Adams uh, and others thought that we should be the city on the hill, the model for the rest of the world, uh, and that others should, uh, we should try and set an example that others would emulate. Uh, the other side of that uh, uh, debate, if you will, was Woodrow Wilson who believed that we ought to be aggressively out in the world trying to, as he, as he put it, make the world safe for democracy, to, to actively be engaged in the rest of the world in promoting our values and in promoting democracy. I think that the one part of, of American exceptionalism that, in my view, remains uh, relevant, even in light of today's problems, is that we still have a unique convening power. Uh, there is really no other country in the world that is trusted by most of the other countries in the world uh, in terms of uh, protecting the what we would call the global spaces, uh, the freedom of navigation, uh, uh, the internet, if you, uh, if you will, and, and other such domains. And our ability to get countries to come together uh, to try to work on problems and to try and solve global problems. Uh, in a way, the, uh, President Biden's convening of the global summit on, on, the, uh, in, on climate change just a few days ago is an example of that. No one, no one trusts the Russians to bring together a large number of other countries. No one trusts China to do that. And as suspicious of some countries as some countries are of the United States, the reality is we still have, a, I think, a unique convening power in the world in terms of trying to deal uh, with global problems. So then what part of American exceptionalism is over, if in fact you think any of it is or should be? I don't think it's over, but I think it's challenged. And I, I think that in a way, uh, um, the, com the public comments that we have seen out of uh, uh, Xi Jinping of China and the Chinese foreign minister in Anchorage at the meeting are an example of the pushback that this country is giving is getting that we our economic model is no longer one that others uh, ought to follow uh, in the wake of uh, the economic crisis in 2008 2009 uh, that where we actually had to seek Chinese help to uh, to get out of that mess uh, but where it was created, a, a global economic crisis was created in this country. Uh, I think that our paralysis politically, uh, and you know, we've always had polarization in this country politically, but, but what is new is paralysis and our inability to tackle anything big uh, and get it done, whether it's education or, the, uh, or uh, uh, infrastructure or immigration and so on. And, and our domestic divisions 
uh, not to mention the, the race issues that we have, the race problems that we have, and so on. And so the Chinese and others are saying, you're not an example either politically or economically uh, that anyone else in the world uh, ought to follow, and you're in no position to lecture the rest of the world uh, in, those, in those arenas because of all, uh, of all the problems that you have. And, and I, think, I think that those are real challenges that we have. Uh, the question in terms of, of our, whether our being an, the indispensable nation is, uh, is over, I think depends on how we come back economically and also whether we can get past our political paralysis to tackle some of the real problems that we face here at home. But how, how much of uh, the challenge is in, in, in adjusting to a new, new situation is are things that we can change at home as opposed to a change in the global environment, in global realities as different countries have become stronger economies, have changed their own expectations and their expectations of what role America should play. You know, perhaps moving toward a more multipolar world would be the preference of many such countries rather than having America continue to be the premier power? Well, I think a multipolar world is a given. Uh, that's just the reality. And, and we certainly are not uh, going to be regarded uh, under any circumstances as the model to follow for uh, Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin. But in terms of the rest of the world, uh, I, think, I think that we, we still have that uh, convening power and and they look to us uh, for leadership in terms of trying to deal with global problems in a way they do not look to uh, Russia or China. But it does begin here at prop, and the, but getting to a better place does begin here at home and addressing uh, our domestic problems and, and, uh, and, and moving forward uh, from where we are now politically, I think is, is critical and I think that's why, in, you know, many of the problems we're trying to address include uh, reinvestment in our own country and research and development and uh, basic research, education, and so on. We we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of catching up to do here at home. So I have to push back ever so gently because China, certainly when I lived in China and I attended, you know, the summit for African leaders to come, dozens of them. Uh, in 2006, and those sorts of summits, those sorts of meetings continue. Um, there have been summits for the Belt and Road Initiative, two of them, that have brought in dozens of leaders. So with developing countries, China has developed a convening um, power um, and has, has some street crowd on the ground because of the investments that it's been making through its Belt and Road Initiative. It's a mixed record for sure, but um, there as, as, as over the last four years, sort of American opinion toward, or world opinion toward the United States has taken a bit of a beating, according to the Pew uh, Global Surveys of Attitudes. Um, China, attitudes toward China until the last couple of years, last two or three years, have been reasonably positive in, in some of those places where China's investing. Um, well, I think, I what, think you've What challenge do you think this poses for the United States? I think you've actually framed it pretty well, and that is the power of the checkbook. Uh, the, the convening power of the checkbook is always powerful, uh, yeah. and and I think that 
Belt and Road is a challenge that uh, uh, that we have uh, that we have to figure out how how to deal with. And and one of the things that we have going for us in that is that there are a lot of challenges associated with Belt and Road. Uh, the debt trap problem that uh, a lot of developing countries are seeing, where they're getting sucked into. Uh, they are agreeing to projects that saddle them with a huge amount of debt to to the Chinese. The Chinese require in all virtually all of those contracts uh, that they be with a Chinese construction company. Uh, they employ Chinese workers. They they are not environmentally sustainable, uh, and so and uh, many of those projects may end up being white elephants. Now I think that. Uh, we've we've begun to figure out again uh, how to compete with this. One of the problems that we've had is that after the end of the Cold War, uh, and I write about this in the book, <clears throat> we dismantled all of the institutions that provide us with the non-military means of, of power. So we abolished, uh, Congress abolished the United States Information Agency in 1998. When I left government in 1993, uh, when I retired as CIA director, the Agency for International Development had 15,000 employees, dedicated people working in developing countries and often in very inhospitable circumstances. When I returned to government 13 years later as Secretary of Defense, AID had 3,000 people and they were managing mainly managing contractors. So. So China, ironically, has developed some of these non-military instruments of power that we've let wither. And until we reform those capabilities and, and fund them properly, we're not going to be able to compete with things like Belt and Road. So I think that China does present a challenge in this. We have made some progress. There, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation was replaced in the Trump administration by a uh, development infrastructure, a new development infrastructure organization that doubled the capitalization of uh, OPEC to $60 billion. And there's just been a recent move to increase that to $100 billion. But what I say in the book is that we really need to figure out how to do a public-private partnership here and how can Amer the American government incentivize U.S. companies to invest in projects in developing countries that actually benefit those countries and not just uh, the elites, but it but benefit the people in terms of jobs, in terms of, of uh, uh, production capabilities and so on. And I think we have that capacity. We just haven't done it yet. But, you know, as I say, I think China's convening power primarily is, uh, is their is is both positive and negative. On the positive side, it's the it's the checkbook diplomacy represented by Belt and Road. It's also the fact that they use their economic power to disadvantage countries that cross them. Uh, so the Koreans, South Koreans, have paid a penalty for allowing uh, the U.S. to put an air defense uh, system in there. The people that sold us the land, the department store uh, chain, uh, has been shut down in China. Uh, when the Philippines challenged the Chinese, the Chinese stopped importing Philippine fruit. When the, China, when the, the uh, Nobel Committee awarded the Nobel Peace Prize to a, to a Chinese dissident, uh, the Chinese stopped buying Norwegian salmon. So they have this negative convening power in terms of pressuring countries uh, very crudely 
to adapt their policies to please China. So I don't, I don't think that China, people do not willingly uh, look to China for leadership in addressing global problems. They look to China for the benefit of the Belt and Road. They look to China for perhaps uh, other benefits, but, but I think that it's a very different kind of convening power, a very different kind of power than the United States has had in the past. Let me ask you as a student of history, literally, you, you have your degrees, your bachelor's, your master's, and your PhD in history. Um, as, you, as you look at um, the, you know, the, the idea of American exceptionalism, the idea that America is, is different from other countries, that perhaps we, uh, you know, when the Cold War ended and we emerged as the premier power, that that was just it. We wouldn't have to do the work anymore and, and thus got rid of the U.S. Information Agency and so forth. Um, I mean, what, what does history tell us about the rise and fall of, of powers and um, what speeds that kind of a, of a process? I mean, what are we not doing right now that we need to be doing, uh, taking into account all the other things that are changing in the world, but to continue to play a meaningful leadership role in the world? You, you, you've talked about investment, but what, what besides that? What about, um, I mean, you, you've talked about several different instruments of non-military instruments of power that we've let wither. Like, what do you think is at the top of the list for what should be happening now that isn't? Well, I think I think there are a number of things, and and first of all, I would say that uh, that many of the problems that we have dealt with over the past twenty years internationally, uh, and I would say, uh, well, have have derived from what I would refer to as either hubris or triumphalism after the end of the Cold War. And, and the belief that, uh, well, with the fact that we had won the Cold War, the Soviet Union collapsed, and we were sort of sitting on top of the world in a position of power unparalleled, perhaps since uh, globally, since the Roman Empire. And, and I think we felt we could change the world and make it more in our image that, that uh, as, as, as some as one as Francis Fukuyama wrote, uh, you know, it was the end of history. The the debate between authoritarianism and democracy and market economies was all over, and I think we've seen that's totally wrong, and and uh, history is still with us very much. But what what we what we didn't really appreciate was that although the Cold War took place against the greatest arms race in the history of the world. It was actually a there was actually a military standoff, and in the entirety of the Cold War, there were probably only fewer than a hundred American uh, combat deaths, right at, directly attributable to the Soviet Union. And where the Cold War was actually fought out was through surrogates and guerrilla wars and things like that, but especially in the non-military arenas. So technology, science, education, uh, strategic communications, uh, our alliances, all of these things were instruments of power that were used in an integrated way to, to combat the Soviet Union around the world and, and to um, strength, uh, to, to exacerbate their weaknesses. 
there were there were we had a variety of economic tools that we used, both positive and negative, against the Soviet Union and against people, and with respect to people in the Soviet orbit. So I would say that it's not just one thing that we have to re redevelop, if you will. Uh, but a variety, and it starts with diplomacy. Uh, the State Department has been starved of resources for many years, uh, and, and, and it has been weakened in many respects. But the answer is not just to throw more money at the State Department. It needs to be reformed. It needs to, it needs to shed its bureaucratic uh, character and culture. It needs to be more entrepreneurial. It needs to give more opportunities to younger people and, and not be such a stifling bureaucracy. Some of the most critical uh, people, most critical of the State Department are some of our senior diplomats. Uh, we need to re reinvigorate our foreign assistance programs. And President Bush did that along the lines of the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which talked about accountability and making sure that there was local buy-in to projects and, and so on. Uh, uh, we need strategic communications. In the early 2000s, Hu Jintao invested $7 billion to create a Chinese global strategic communications capability. We dismantled USIA, as I indicated earlier. So so there are, we've, we've allowed, particularly under the Trump administration, we, we took one of our greatest assets, non-military assets, our alliances, and put that in jeopardy. Uh, and it'll take a long time, I think, to get that, the, the level of confidence back among our allies that we are a reliable partner. So there's a variety of things that we need to do uh, in the non-military arena that need investment. And the truth of the matter is compared to the costs of our military, these non-military uh, assets or these non-military instruments of power are relatively inexpensive. Uh, I, when Condi Rice was Secretary of State, she and I would banter back and forth about the fact that uh, if, if you took all the foreign service officers in the American foreign services there are, it would not be enough people to crew a single aircraft carrier. Uh, and, and so we just, we need to understand that these non-military instruments, first of all, were critically important in our success in the Cold War, but they are absolutely essential in, in the contest that we're in with China. Uh, because China, unlike the Soviet Union, is a multi-dimensional power. The Soviet Union basically was a military power that had oil and gas. China's a far more economically sophisticated, economically successful, economically integrated into the rest of the world country than the Soviet Union ever dreamed of being. And so if we're going to uh, actually be able to compete effectively with China, both directly and around the world, we're going to have to we're going to have to reshape and reform and reinvest in these non-military instruments of power. China is challenging the U.S. or would like to compete with the U.S. not just economically and politically and in terms of the non-military instruments of power, but potentially also militarily. Um, some of China's Belt and Road Initiative investments, many of them, are in ports in strategic locations or along coastlines including near and, and around the South China Sea, but also in Pakistan's port of Wadar and Sri Lanka's Hambantota 
and in Djibouti, where China has its first overseas military base. Uh, how concerned are you about the possibility of, of U.S. and uh, the United States and China clashing militarily? And where do you think it might happen if it does? I think that the I think both countries really understand how uh, disastrous a military uh, confrontation between the two of them would be, and and my worry, my greatest worry is that a conflict would occur through miscalculation or an incident that uh, spirals out of control. And of course, the most likely arena for that uh, is in the South China Sea, uh, where uh, our military forces and their military forces uh, are bumping up against each other uh, almost on a daily basis and where uh, both sides are being pretty forward leaning in the deployment of their of their particularly their naval assets but also air air forces uh, the chinese are have created a blue water navy uh, they have uh, they, they, you've, you've mentioned places where they actually are probably going to have, where they either probably will or already have a naval facility, uh, particularly in Djibouti. But what? But they're also looking for a naval facility, a navy base uh, on the west coast of Africa, which would give them access to the Atlantic Ocean. So all of a sudden, we're not talking about the Pacific and the South China Sea and the Indian Ocean. We're talking about the about uh, the Atlantic, and so I think this is very worrisome. And they're cranking out ships at an unbelievable rate. Uh, Xi Jinping just uh, commissioned three new warships all at once uh, just a few days ago. Uh, so I think this is a worry. Um, they're not a global military power at this point. Uh, Maybe they will be. They certainly have devoted a lot of investment to their navy and to their and to their air force and their and their missile capabilities. Uh, but I think where they are particularly uh, a challenge for the United States is in the South China Sea, is in the Pacific, um, uh, particularly uh, uh, west of the uh, of the first line of islands, west of Japan and Taiwan and the Philippines and so on. And there, they outnumber us significantly. They have about 370 um, uh, Navy um, ships there, and we have something on the order of 70 or 75. Now, we have allies who have ships, and so that number isn't as one-sided as it sounds because the Japanese, the Australians, the Philippines, and others have, have navies as well. But, but it, it, it is clearly the area where they have dramatically improved their military capabilities. I think that the risk of a conflict clearly right now is greatest uh, with respect to Taiwan. But I think that at least for the near term and maybe the medium term, uh, the risk of a direct Chinese assault or invasion of Taiwan is actually pretty low. I, there are a lot of alternative means of putting pressure on Taiwan available to uh, uh, to the Chinese that are short of war and short of uh, the potential for a confrontation and, and even a major war with the United States uh, over Taiwan. I, I worry, for example, uh, about what I would call a, a nibbling strategy where the Chinese might seize one or two Chinese, uh, Taiwanese islands, 
that are actually quite close to the coast of China and therefore militarily not particularly a big challenge. And I doubt that the Taiwanese or the U.S. would go to war uh, to retake those islands. But Xi Jinping would have made a point. I think there are also a variety of economic and other kinds of tools that uh, that the Chinese can bring to bear against Taiwan. But but the South China Sea is the place where the risk of a of an inadvertent confrontation um, could escalate. And and we don't have uh, any of the agreements with the Chinese that we negotiated with the Soviets in terms of maintaining control of uh, inadvertent uh, incidents that could escalate. Uh, with the Soviets, we had the Incidents at Sea uh, Agreement, which provided a set of uh, procedures that you would follow and, and that both countries would follow if there were, if there were a clash or a, con a confrontation between our ships. Uh, or submarines, and we don't have anything like that uh, with the Chinese. We don't have a we don't have a hotline with the Chinese. So, so that's a worry for me. So the military okay. piece of it is is significant. We'll be back with more after this message. Ready to take your travels to the next level? Alaska Airlines is committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey, from mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board, and everything in between. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. Now, um... We're, we have a few questions uh, that have come in from you, and we are going to go to some of those. Um, Secretary Gates, one of the questions is, can you talk about why you think you were able to straddle two administrations from two different parties? Do you think that could happen again now, given the current political climate? So one of the questions I got a lot was, how could you possibly work for two presidents as different as uh, George W. Bush and Barack Obama. And I would just smile and say, well, you forget I worked for Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. Uh, the fact is, uh, Bush and Obama were the seventh and eighth presidents, respectively, that I worked for. And, uh, and I just figured out fairly early in my career how to navigate a path that basically focused on national security and kept out of politics. And I think that, uh, I think that was central. The re the, one of my great regrets when I retired as Secretary of Defense uh, that I voiced publicly at the time was that at that point, and that was 2011, I was the last senior American national security official who had worked for both Democrats and Republicans. And, and I think that's a real concern in our national security establishment today. Um, so another question, can we count on China to help us bring along countries like Russia to take bold action on climate change? What alliances for good can we hope to work with China on? How can we cooperate Bye. together? I, I think that there there is a menu of things we could work uh, uh, work uh, with China on. I, you know, Secretary Blinken has 
Secretary of State Blinken has sort of described the U.S., the, our approach to the, China, the relationship with China is falling into three baskets, areas where we potentially can cooperate, areas where we uh, will compete, and areas where we will be adversaries. Um, and I think, I think there are a number of areas that, uh, where we potentially uh, could uh, work together with the Chinese, I think. Uh, getting getting a handle on Iran's nuclear program is one of them. Uh, the Korean nuclear program is another. Uh, climate change is another. Um, when I was secretary, and I, admittedly those were in a little easier days in terms of our relationship with China, we, we did some naval exercises with China, working together on potential uh, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, sort of along the lines of helping if there's a tsunami in Asia and so on. Um, so I think there are some areas uh, of potential cooperation. What we don't know, going back to Blinken's three baskets, is whether the Chinese see the relationship in that way and whether Xi Jinping is willing to sort of think about it in, in those same terms. So, and frankly, I think uh, uh, I, whether it's climate change or anything else, I don't think... Uh, the Chinese or anybody else is going to be able to bring the Russia bring the Russians along, if you will, uh, to cooperate. Russia under Putin is basically a disruptive power, particularly with respect to the United States and and the Western democracies. Um, and on climate change, the truth of the matter is, if you look at the commitments that were made uh, at the uh, uh, at the summit that uh, President Biden hosted, the Chinese basically said. You know, we'll we'll kind of get there um, uh, along the lines of when we said we would. We'll, we'll begin to get a handle on it by 2030 or something. But the fact is, the Chinese are now putting out more emissions than all of the OE, other OECD countries put together. Uh, Russia made no new commitments uh, at at the uh, at the climate meeting. So. I'm not sure either power, frankly, uh, is particularly interested in making any serious moves uh, toward dealing with the climate problem. Hmm. Okay, another question is, uh, can the United States do anything to respond effectively to China's actions in Hong Kong, which is legally part of the People's Republic of China since 1997? Well, only reactively. We, it's very, uh, I, I think that the chances of reversing what has happened in uh, Hong Kong are somewhere between slim and none. Um, and, and, and so we can be punitive about it. And there, and there have been some sanctions taken and, and some measures taken against uh, the privileges of, that were accorded Hong Kong, particularly economically. Um, by the United States government, but but at this point, it seems to me the only uh, recourse that we have is a punitive one. Uh, there are, there is very little chance of uh, of reversing what has happened in Hong Kong, in my view. Hmm. So this is shifting a little away from China and just looking into the future. Um, do you think there are, are do you see countries in Africa or? South America or other places we're not looking that closely that we might consider as, as true emerging powers that you expect to play an outsized role going forward in this century? Well, I think that the most obvious one along those lines is, uh, is India. Uh, India is, is uh, 
uh, going to play, already plays a very important role and I think uh, will uh, have an increasingly important role uh, in the world. Uh, you know, the problem, the problem, you know, one of the, one of the sad realities of history is that in, in the, at the late, in the late 19th century, Argentina was one of the top 10 countries in the world in terms of economic power. Uh, but thanks to all economic politics, uh, it now faces many, many challenges, as, do, as does uh, Brazil and, and, in all honesty, also Mexico at this point um, under uh, President Obrador. So I'm, I, I, other than India, is uh, hard for me to see uh, another country emerging in the next, say, decade that will play the kind of, has the potential to play the kind of global role that I think China, that I think India is likely to play. And the U.S. is working with India, Japan, and Australia in the Quad, um, you know, in cooperating yep. in various ways. Um, do you see ways that the U.S. should be thinking about cooperating with other emerging powers, uh, the, some of the ones that you mentioned, not just in the next decade, but, but beyond that going forward? Well, I think I, I think that uh, that our development assistance programs uh, are very much in our interest, and and many and and in you know, people faulted the last president for an America First policy. The truth is, every president's responsibility is to look out for American interests first. Uh, that's the that's their primary job. The question is how you do that. And, and frankly, it seems to me, uh, development programs, particularly if we can, if going back to my earlier comments about a public-private partnership in terms of investment in developing countries, it's in our interest for those, for those economies to prosper and potentially be markets for the United States and, and for us to increase our trade with them. The problem is uh, the country that's doing the best job of that is in fact China. Uh, China is the primary trading partner of a majority of countries in the world, probably twice as many countries as we are the primary trading partner. And, and if we're going to compete economically with China, we need to look more broadly than just Western Europe or um, uh, 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 certain countries in Asia and so on. And so I think, I think it's in our own long-term interest to do what we can to foster economic development uh, in these countries. And I would add political reform. The thing is we have to understand they're not gonna behave just, uh, they're not going to structure themselves the way we would have them structure themselves. We have, to, we have to be more understanding and tolerant of different cultures and different approaches to governance other than the one that we have. And actually, going back to the beginning of our conversation, and as the Chinese would point out, you know, ours is not such a hot model for people to work right now uh, to look to anyway. Right, so, so they would make the argument, you know, we have an all of government, all of society approach to what we're doing. We, we share a goal, we want China to be great again in the world. Uh, we have, you know, Chinese rejuvenation, um, and you look at, you know, from the Chinese perspective, and I heard this many times when I was living in China, you look at kind of what the mess appears to be in the United States when it comes to elections and democracy. And they say, you know, we clearly have the better model. Now, it hasn't 
necessarily sold as a package to other countries, even with the shift to authoritarianism in some other places. Um, but China's rather unique in having um, a, a, you know, a competent technocracy within an authoritarian state. Um, I mean, how much do you... Yeah, the only... Go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, please. No, I, I, was, just, I was just going to say, uh, to, to coin a phrase, the dustbin of history is full of empires that underestimated the United States and its resilience. Uh, so, frankly, I'm still betting on us uh, for the long term, but we, there's no question that we're going through a bad patch. And the truth is, the Chinese model is attractive, particularly the Chinese economic and political model, is attractive especially to would-be or existing authoritarians. It's a peculiar kind of model. Um, there are a number of questions about Chinese investments in the U.S., um, like what's being bought up. There, there, were, there were a lot of investments being made about five, six, seven years ago. They've kind of tapered off since then. Um, another question is if China cut the U.S. off economically with the United States collapse, um, what do you think about Trump and now Biden's tariffs on China? Um, feel free to answer whichever part of that you'd like. Well, I think that, I think that our basic approach to the Chinese should be um, reciprocity. Uh, the, the same th the privileges that we have allowed them here, they ought to allow American countries, uh, American companies, uh, whether it comes, whether it's intellectual property or whether it's investment rules uh, or joint ventures or a variety of things. Uh, the truth is, uh, particularly in the last couple of years, and the Biden administration is actually ramping this up, there is going to be a lot more scrutiny going forward of Chinese companies trying to invest in the United States, and particularly anything having to do with technology uh, and high technology. Uh, the strengthening of the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. has been strengthened uh, by statute, by the Congress. Uh, and so I think, I think that it will be a far more selective process now going forward in terms of Chinese investment here, particularly in sensitive industries. Uh, with respect to the trade conflict, uh, you know, the truth is I think tariffs uh, mainly uh, penalize the consumers and not particularly, uh, uh, not particularly the Chinese government. I don't think that's the best way for us to uh, exercise our, our uh, economic uh, leverage with respect to China. Uh, I think if, if all trade between the United States and China were cut off, uh, I, I think it's more likely the Chinese would have a problem, a bigger problem than the United States. The, and the final thing I would say on economics, this is where, this is where our, our own national interests are served by our alliances. When, we were having, when we're having our economic debates with China and in a an economic negotiation with China over the rules of the road, just think, right in, in, in the last administration, it was the Chinese on one side of the table and us on the other side of the table. But just think how much more powerful our position would be is if on our side of the table, in addition to us, there was Japan and Australia and the EU and India 
and all of us basically saying these these reciprocity rules are the way this is going to have to happen in the future our negotiating position would be so much stronger if we if we mobilized our allies in an approach that economically benefited everybody that's a great note to end on secretary Th gates thanks again for being here my pleasure And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Robert and Mary Kay for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was engineered by Chi Lee. The live recording was engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Anne Krasnovich and Mo Cloud managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to CrossCut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to CrossCut.com donate. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.